Welcome to Voices from the Field, a podcast produced by the National Collaborating Center for Aboriginal Health. Hello, I'm Rick Harp. This NCCAH program focuses on innovative research and community-based initiatives promoting the health and well-being of First Nation, Inuit, and Métis peoples in Canada. In this episode, I'll be discussing Indigenous Child Welfare with NCCAH Research Associate Sarah DeLeo, who, along with Margot Greenwood, the academic lead for the Center, is the co-author of Turning a New Page, Cultural Safety, Critical Creative Literary Interventions, Truth and Reconciliation, and the Crisis of Child Welfare. This article charts connections between historic and contemporary settler colonial state interventions into the lives and places of Indigenous families. Interventions all too often justified as being for Indigenous peoples' own good. Here now, my conversation with Sarah DeLeo. Sarah DeLeo, welcome. Hi, Rick. Thanks. I'm so excited to be talking with you this morning. So, Sarah, in this paper you co-author with Margot Greenwood, you write, quote, Broadly speaking, cultural safety starts with identifying inherent power relationships between service providers and the people who use the services. Why does that identification potentially matter for Indigenous people who find themselves on the receiving end of child welfare services? I think it matters a lot because I think colonial history is built on the idea that power doesn't matter or Mm. that power naturally sits with non-Indigenous colonial subjects, uh, often Euro-white folks. And by not acknowledging that power does exist by sort of making opaque the reality of power, what happens is we can, those of us who are non-Indigenous white settler subjects, can easily slip into a role where we normalize and take for granted our right to impose perspectives and ways of living and knowing and being onto other people. If, if power isn't expressly acknowledged, if it isn't foregrounded, if it isn't highlighted, if it isn't critically thought about, it simply disappears. It becomes normalized. It becomes invisible. And what that defaults to is people with power continuously deploying it in the often worst interests of people from whom power has been removed. Very specifically, I can argue, and uh, Margo and I do argue in this paper, in the realm of child welfare, and uh, if you could see me, Rick, I would be uh, air quoting welfare uh, <laughs> in, uh, in air quotes there. Uh, in the realm of child welfare, what that has looked like really since the earliest settler contact in the Americas is settler colonial subjects, Euro settler colonial subjects, executing power and believing that they have power 
over especially Indigenous children. They think that their ways of knowing and being are somehow superior to Indigenous ways of knowing and being. And we know from looking at history, particularly in the realm of Indigenous uh, children and non-Indigenous settler subjects, that that kind of execution of power has come to no end of terrifying outcomes. So one of the things that we argue in this paper is that we need to unsettle that kind of normalized assumption about who holds power, who knows best about children, particularly Indigenous children, and who has the right to impose power through state-endorsed power structures like child welfare, like residential schools, like reserve systems, like the eugenic system. Now, something I'm sure you've come up against is is this idea that, you know, well, doesn't the child welfare system negatively affect everyone and anyone who comes into contact with it? So why do Indigenous people need a, a unique or specific approach to their situation? Well, first and foremost, I would I do get that question. Uh, I've been writing about child welfare as an arm of the colonial state for well over a decade now, and it's it's a fairly common uh, uh, sort of response. Well, it, if it's bad for one person, it's bad for everybody. You know, why are why are you kind of highlighting the violence that it uh, raw, uh, that it imposes within indigenous communities? So, just to tackle the the premise of that question, I would say. it's a false premise. Child welfare does not bear down equally on all people. The similar arguments have been made about residential schooling. There were boarding schools for more children than just Indigenous children in Canada. The difference, however, is a difference in kind. First and foremost, child welfare bears down much more heavily on Indigenous families and communities than it does on non-Indigenous families and communities. There's simply more Indigenous children apprehended for uh, lesser reasons by the state than non-Indigenous children are apprehended. Secondarily, the removal of Indigenous children from their communities, their territories, and their families, be those urban or be those on reserve, has much greater impact for a colonized community than it does for a settler community. Because the state has systematically sought to disrupt the rights of Indigenous children and family throughout history, again, since very early colonial contact, because the effort has been so systematic, the continuous erosion of Indigenous identity and Indigenous family connection through state-imposed regulations like child welfare does more adversely affect Indigenous children. Finally, Non-Indigenous children are often placed with other non-Indigenous families. So the placement of children when removed from families and communities looks different than it does when Indigenous children are removed. In the case of many Indigenous children in this country, until very recently, and I would argue uh, in a fairly minimal way, Indigenous children continue to be placed in the homes and care of non-Indigenous people, which means culture, identity, sense of self, connection to territory, connection to family are further eroded and unequally eroded as compared to non-Indigenous children. So 
the very premise of an idea that, well, child welfare negatively affects everybody is simply, it's, it's a factually incorrect argument. Child welfare much more adversely impacts Indigenous children. And the fact that we can see it as an extension of a historic effort to eliminate indigeneity in the Americas means that it's even more potent and even more imperative that we address it as an act of colonial violence, very specifically. It's not unlike the justice system in this country. I don't think it's fair to say, well, the justice system, you know, adversely impacts all people who run into it. The fact of the matter is, is Indigenous men are are incarcerated at rates far higher than any other population. The fact of the matter is that Indigenous children are removed at higher rates than any other population in this country. It adversely affects Indigenous children, Indigenous families, Indigenous communities in ways that it just doesn't impact other families and communities. You also write, quote, common sense was and is a crucial colonial strategy with remarkable resiliency, offering colonizers a means to distance themselves from more obviously coercive or violent ideas, actions, or policies. And I'm wondering, are we to take from that observation that that you regard, you and Margot regard child welfare systems as a form of violence? Yes, I absolutely 100% unequivocally view child welfare, especially in Canada, particularly as it bears down on Indigenous children, families and communities as an act of colonial violence. There's just no two ways about it. If we look at it historically, the current child welfare system is an extension of the 60s scoop, which was an extension of the residential schooling project. Colonial violence has systematically made effort to de-indigenize landscapes, to unsettle indigenous ways of knowing and being. I would argue that there's very sort of uh, applied uh, reasons for that. They tend to do with resource extraction, land claim, eradication of people who might stand in the way of an ultimate sort of supreme colonial ruling. And I would argue that most colonial subjects, most colonial folks don't want to think of themselves and maybe don't even consciously understand ourselves as uh, perpetrators of a certain kind of colonial violence. But so instead, we cloak what we're doing in best intentions and sort of common sense. Well, look, it, it just makes sense to remove these children and put them in residential schools so that we can give them the best of education and we can do what we're doing in, in, in the sort of uh, best intended of ways. That kind of logic fueled residential schooling. It extended into the 60s scoop and into a variety of other uh, extraordinary extraordinarily invasive activities of, of the colonial state into Indigenous children and family and communities. And I would argue absolutely. It's not that an individual social worker wakes up on a Tuesday morning at 7.30 in the morning and thinks, ah, I'm going to go and actively disrupt Indigenous community. They are instead enveloped in a larger system of common sense. And that common sense argues things like, well, you know, if a, if a child seems to be neglected, it makes common sense that a child should have the best and the brightest future ahead of them. 
But but the thing that goes unquestioned is, well, whose definition of neglect, whose definition of the best and brightest future? If a child doesn't have, you know, a four-poster bed and access to swimming lessons and soccer and, you know, a series of other sort of tropes and trappings of the brightest future possible. And let's be clear, that kind of language is exactly what's embedded in child welfare policies in this country. If a child doesn't have that, a social worker might think, it's common sense that we would want this child to have the best possible outcomes of the future. Who's going to argue against that kind of wording? The thing that might go unsaid is, wow, maybe this child lives in a house that's, you know, a little run down around the edges. Maybe they share a mattress with three or four other kids, but they're embedded in family. They're embedded in community. They have lineage. They have genealogical structure. It may very well be that they have connection to language and land. Yes, perhaps there is some common sense if we're looking at the common sense of non-Indigenous, often Euro-white settler subjects, a common sense vision that that child might have a better and brighter future if they had soccer lessons and access to whole foods and, you know, organic coffee down the street. I don't know. But the, the, what needs to be unsettled, what needs to get shaken up is the very definitions of whose common sense we're defining the best interests of children and families in. And I would argue that common sense has always been a kind of logic that lies behind apprehension of children, disruption of Indigenous families and communities. It's been there for as long as settler colonial subjects have engaged with Indigenous people. So at one point, your piece references the term colonial benevolence, an oxymoron if there ever was one. And, and yet, <laughs> it, it's this very fitting description for how child welfare interventions have been rationalized yeah. and justified. And, you know, it, it occurred to me that in thinking about this, there's this deeply paternalistic idea, often left unstated in the ways you've just alluded to, that, that Indigenous peoples need to be saved from themselves, which I think is truly insidious, because not only does it act as, as, as this kind of retroactive rationale for non-Indigenous people, yeah. se seizing control of Indigenous lands and bodies, it frames those who enact that as somehow virtuous, as, as you yeah. point out, uh, what someone once, ironically at the time, called the white man's burden. Yes. But, here, <laughs> but here's where I here's where I think it actually becomes really sinister, if if I'm using that word appropriately, is that you know colonize a people long enough, break up their families, push them off their homelands, you know, basically alienate them and dislocate them, and you know you will place them into a state of constant disarray. And then you end up in this bizarro place where those who've mangled the lives of indigenous peoples now decide they'll be the ones who will quote unquote fix them. Yeah. So the architect of the problem also gets to design and implement the solution. I mean, this is so messed up, yeah. if I may be completely, you know, frank. It, yeah. Um, so I'll answer your question three ways. First and foremost, yes, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that uh, colonial 
subjects have been extraordinarily good at consistently distancing ourselves from our own culpability. We always come up, if I may be sort of punny here, as shiny and white, virtuous, <laughs> clean, tidy. Our hands aren't bloody. I mean, we love to look that way. And, and this is a global phenomena. I mean, I'm not, I, I Margot and I have anchored our argument in in Canada, you know, a lot of the language that we've sort of interrogated in terms of child welfare comes out of British Columbia. But this is, this is exactly, you know, what, what, uh, the Dutch did in, in the West Indies. It's what the French did in, in the Congo. You know, this is, this is a, this is a colonial trick, if you will. It's sort of a, um, you know, a, a magical play that we get to, uh, not only have the hat, but we know where the rabbit comes from and, and we explain it all. And it's as if, Everything else on the stage just doesn't really exist. We get to explain ourselves away. We get to be benevolent. My second response to your question is, you know, and I'll, I'll be frank here, and I'm not trying to be slippery. I, uh, I'm not convinced that it's my place. Um, you know, I, I look to better minds than my own, indeed the minds of Indigenous scholars, to talk about uh, some of the challenges that Indigenous communities and families face. You know, I agree. Those are there. They are absolutely the outcome of carefully planned colonial architecture, as you said. But I think one of the things that especially non-Indigenous people need to pay more attention to is the remarkable strength that still exists in Indigenous communities. I oh, think, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and I wasn't in any way, shape, or form suggesting that you weren't acknowledging that. I'm, I'm, what I'm saying, and I'll bring this back to child welfare, is I think one of the tricks that, uh, I'm just going to segue here for a moment, Rick, and say, um, I recognize that colonial subjects, especially in Canada, are not all white. So, you know, I think that racialized colonial subjects bring in a new discussion to this. But for the sake of this discussion, I am going to sort of uh, argue that I'm often talking about Eurocentric white colonial subjects and the sort of white supremacy that sort of supersedes a lot of these conversations. So uh, yeah, a bit synonymously here, I'm going to use colonial violence and white supremacy as meaning the same thing. I think one of the tricks of white supremacy, particularly in child welfare, is to constantly in, understand Indigenous communities and families as pathologized. And, and there I'll quote uh, a Cree elder, Willie Irvine, who observes that that is, in fact, one of, as you were saying, the most insidious tricks of white supremacist colonial violence is to constantly pathologize Indigenous people. And I think that tracks perfectly onto the rationales that sit behind the child welfare intervention into Indigenous families. So I think one of the things that especially white Eurocentric colonial subjects need to do to unsettle that orientation is to just bloody quit speaking about Indigenous people as this pathologized group and somehow suggesting that white people are beyond all of the kind of 
crap and muddiness that we we seem so comfortable uh, linking to indigenous bodies and indigenous lands. I think that that's an imperative role of white settler subjects to engage conversations that really laud and valorize and celebrate indigenous people in this country. I think, in fact, if we did more of that, we would probably see less of a common sense undergridding toward indigenous families and communities that suggested apprehension of children was a fine, laudable, benevolent action. But, but wait, Sarah, are you suggesting we take a complex, nuanced approach to Indigenous humanity? <laughs> <laughs> wait, hold on. That might be too radical first thing in the morning, Rick. <laughs> but yes, I, I mean, fundamentally, as humorous as that sounds, I think, uh, and I don't want to go, you know, casting too many stones, but, uh, you know... One of the things that this paper doesn't uh, isn't able to point out. I worked in 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 women's centers for years. I worked in women's prisons. I've worked with dozens of social workers. I've worked with hundreds of families who've had their children removed, and consequently, hundreds of social workers who do that removal. And again, I don't think. You know, uh, Jane Smith wakes up in the morning and thinks, I'm going to go enact colonial violence today. I think the thing is, there's just uh, a common sense, unquestioned sort of normalcy that, for instance, comes to my shiny house and sees a bottle of wine on the counter and thinks, oh, that's fine. She's a pleasant professor and she probably had a nice glass of white wine last night, as opposed to walking into, uh, you know, an apartment uh, that, you know, has some rougher around the edges kind of components to it, sees a bottle of white wine and thinks, okay, we've got a drinking problem because there's a whole series of anti-Indigenous racist discursivities that frame the way we understand people. And I don't think social workers are fully taught to think about these sort of common sense assumptions in the nuanced and problematic ways that they deserve to be thought about. And I think it's, it is an ongoing challenge to name people's pain without like you say, pathologizing them. And it's, it's quite remarkable how paternalism and pathologization are kind of, kind of fit hand in glove when it comes to these situations. Yeah. And I think, you know, I grew up in very, very small remote communities in, in British Columbia. I grew up on Haida Gwaii and in Terrace. And I think, uh, this pathologized paternalistic lens has so many characteristics to it and it's so insidious and, and and complicated you know it sort of is this constant unquestioned hierarchalization of well it's the margin therefore it's uh it it needs uh it needs our attention oh it's the outskirts therefore you know it's it's these strange discursive, even linguistic structures that set up how we understand the world. Oh, it's outside. Oh, it's, you know, it's beyond. And I think we do need to unsettle those things because if there's anything to be learned from history, 
It's that people aren't always setting out to do evil when they undertake the most egregious kind of action. So common sense and benevolence have often, often been the guise for some of the most heinous of activities that humans have conducted on each other. So let's turn to methods that hopefully destabilize these systems. And and I'm going to quote you again, uh, you and Margot. Uh, a growing body of evidence in both the medical and health sciences highlights a powerful connection between creative arts and cultural safety. For individuals in positions of power, studies have shown that immersion in creative arts can help build the empathy and understanding required for culturally safe practices. So can you give us a sense of how this might translate into better concrete outcomes on the ground? I think one of the one of the ways that that insidious sort of benevolence and pathologization work is because people simply haven't made effort to unsettle their common sense perspectives. I mean, I think people's perspectives and attitudes change often through proximal relations. So for instance, you know, uh, my my granny was uh, quite homophobic, but uh, that changed when I brought home people who didn't adhere to her sort of uh, cliches about non-heterosexual people. Those sorts of laws and regulations have shifted over time in this country because of the proximity, the realization that, wait, my assumptions about certain kinds of people and bodies are simply wrong. And I know they're wrong because I come into close contact with them and I realize, goodness, I could be doing better, I could be thinking better, I could be engaging differently. The truth of the matter is, is we don't in this country all have the capability, for instance, to go live in Kispiox or Skidigit or, you know, a myriad of vibrant, incredible First Nations communities. So, for instance, child welfare social workers are not always able to gain proximal and nuanced understandings about Indigenous families and communities by living and being immersed in them. So what's the next best thing? Well, the next best thing a lot of evidence suggests is immersion into voices and visions and stories and realities of the people that we want to change attitudes about. So for instance, if we want to ensure that the child welfare workers of tomorrow have a deeper understanding about resiliency and humor and law and protocol and strength in Indigenous communities, why not have them read things like you know, Lee Miracle's Raven Song. Why not have them immersed in a, in an exhibit by Bill Reed? 
Why not have them interact with a piece of video art by Rebecca Belmore? Why not have people gain a close-up, immersive understanding of Indigenous people through the arts and stories that Indigenous people have been so generous to put on the public record? This is not disruptive for Indigenous communities. It's not a bunch of sort of guilt-ridden, hand-wringing white people going and asking Indigenous people to sort of please give more to us. These are things that are already on the public record. They've generously been put there in order for non-Indigenous white settler subjects to gain deeper understandings of Indigenous communities and families. And the truth is, those voices and stories and words and images provide incredible insight so that Indigenous people and families and communities cease to be such a mystery to non-Indigenous people and can thus be attended to in a more nuanced and I would argue empathetic way. Okay, so that's their end of the, or their place in the whole system. How does that then transform how they behave going forward? Like what, what does that mean? To, how, how does that benefit an Indigenous person who's son was just taken by the system. Like, are you saying that it's less likely, for example, that, that this, the child would be seized? They try to find other ways to keep them together with their, uh, you know what I mean? I'm just trying to get a sense of, of that. Yeah. Yeah. How does this, how does the rubber hit the road? That's, it's, it's a great, it's a great question, Rick. So first and foremost, uh, I'll sort of harken back to something that Margot and I said early on in this paper. And this is something that I've argued in a number of other papers and places that I've, I've written, which is in my estimation, uh, the child welfare system simply needs to be dismantled. It just, it doesn't work. It's hinged and linked to a colonial history. It's an extension of residential schooling, the 60s scoop. I just am not a believer in the state apprehending Indigenous kids, full stop. So I think before we get to that place of a dismantlement of the child welfare system, however, we have to somehow make the players involved in the current system somehow understand in a more nuanced way their role uh, in the apprehension process. I mean, to be very clear, I would like fewer Indigenous children to be apprehended. And I think that might come about if child welfare workers had a more nuanced understanding of Indigenous families and communities. And I do think that that will potentially come about through their engagement in the arts. Now, I think there's other ways that Indigenous families and children might deploy arts-related activities in order to make their voices uh, better understood by child welfare workers. And here I'm thinking particularly of child welfare workers in a culturally safe environment or in an environment that was leading toward cultural safety, engaging the people that they apprehend through things like letter writing. So imagine if, uh, you know, an Indigenous teenager was able to write their perspectives on the world and have a caseworker read that, know that the caseworker was going to read that. The truth of the matter is most caseworkers in this country are overloaded. They 
they don't engage with the children that they're apprehending, those children's perspectives on the issues of apprehension. So again, things like letter writing, you know, co-creation of poetics, things like that might serve to amp up the communication between child welfare workers and Indigenous families and communities. It takes pressure off of things like, you know, filling out forms. I get lost filling out forms. I wouldn't get lost writing a heartfelt letter about my state and what I want in the world. I do get hampered by being asked to fill out a zillion forms. I think the very apparatuses through which apprehension works also have to be changed. Again, I'm not suggesting that we need to somehow make child welfare uh, more comfortable. I'm suggesting these as somewhat in-term possible solutions. An end game goal for me is really to see the dismantlement of what I cannot help but think in another 50 years is going to be viewed as a system as archaic as the 60s scoop and the residential schooling system. So emphasizing that that this is at best an interim measure, I, I still would like to to engage in a conversation about the willingness perhaps of, of child welfare workers or the capacity thereof to engage in these kinds of activities. Because as the saying goes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. Yeah. And who's to say that child welfare workers will even engage this material? Uh, and, I, and I raise this because, frankly, a lot of cultural production is designed precisely to distract us from reality, which I think kind of conditions our expectations mm -hmm. of arts and entertainment. Right. Where we seek... To, you know, where we seek to be soothed, not right. so much challenged. Yeah. So how would how would we overcome that conditioned expectation? I mean, I think uh, it probably has to be uniformly instituted. And I agree. You know, Rick, I work in a faculty of medicine, and uh, I know that uh, discussions of cultural safety or anti-Indigenous racism are tuned out by exactly the future professionals for whom that conversation is most needed, right? So there will always be, I think, people who are simply uninterested in engaging. You're right, you can lead the horse to water, you can't make them drink. I think, however, that there are people who... who sit, who straddle a more middle line, who actually haven't really thought about this. I'm amazed when I teach fourth year students in my university classes, uh, up until four or five years ago, I remember I had a class of 14 or 15 fourth year students uh, in British Columbia here, and eight of those students had never heard of residential schooling. And when they went home to talk to their parents about it, their parents hadn't heard about it. Now, I don't think that these people are necessarily horses who are unwilling to be led to water. I think they act are unwilling to drink from the, from the water. I think they actually weren't aware that the water was there. So I think there's, um, there's a possibility of reaching a fairly significant number of people by offering professional development courses, by insisting that part of curriculum for social work 
classes and social work courses and curriculum at university uh, have an immersion in arts and letters produced by Indigenous people in this country. I suspect there's going to be a percentage of people who go through social work programs who simply say, I know what's best. I am here to implement the rule of the law. This is the law. I know I know the need for apprehension when I see it. I don't need to be told what constitutes it. I don't need to have it nuanced. I know it when I see it. But I think there's also a goodly percentage of people to return to the metaphor of bringing that horse to water, who simply didn't know the water existed. And if we can point out that water, they they very well may drink it more willingly than we knew they would. And so at the risk of, of some repetition here, I'm trying to get a sense of what your hope is or maybe even expectation when it comes to to the results of, of this kind of approach. Because with all due respect to the immense body of Indigenous work out there, I've yet to come across the book or the movie that's going to compel and convince Canadians to give the land back. <laughs> and and this is something you actually allude to in, yeah. in your piece, in this, uh, and, I'll, and I'll just quote it for people's benefit. Still, and as we and others have observed, much of the work claiming or aiming to be decolonizing or anti-colonial either falls short in its good but misplaced intentions or fails to fully comprehend the virtually impossible nature of work that is truly or fully decolonizing and anti-colonial, that is, reinstating lands, resources, cultures, languages, families, and nations that have already been destroyed or are still permanently occupied and can never be given back. Other scholars have noted that neither decolonizing nor anti-colonial work tidily wraps up or finishes with an unsettling of colonial power. This too suggests that caution should be rightfully applied to ideas about cultural safety, work which can also never be understood as wrapped up or quote-unquote complete, but which must instead keep evolving in pace with the transformative power of colonial privilege and power, end quote. So where would you like to leave people in terms of uh, the, the reasonable expectations about the outcome of, of this. I mean, uh, you, I think I, I, well, I agree with you and Margo. I mean, uh, really we want to see an end to the child welfare system, or at least a system that seems to be built around, uh, the core and, and seemingly only, uh, a tool in their toolkit of apprehension. So mm-hmm. w- what do you, what do you not hope to see, but what, what do you think can be made possible through through destabilizing people's uh, ideas around child welfare, specifically as it applies to Indigenous families? So just let me uh, start with the initial part of of your question, Rick, and I think it's a I think it's a question that deserves the most fulsome of answers, and yet the only answer that I can honestly give is I don't have an answer. The question of full decolonization, which is for settler people in this country to exit, in my estimation, that's probably not going to happen. I don't know. I can't, I can't, uh, you know, foresee the future. But if I were a betting woman, I would bet on the fact that concepts of re-territorialization by Indigenous people in the lands of the Americas 
will never occur. And I think we have to be uh, uh, honest with the, again, magnitude of colonial power. It means that colonial subjects will always be occupiers, will always be extensions of a system that they sought to implement for our own gain. So with that in mind, and with a more pragmatic set of realizations, and I guess, and I don't mean this flippantly, uh, I guess in part reaching towards some of the goals of, for instance, the 2015 Truth and Reconciliation Report and Calls to Action, I think we do have to change now and do better as soon as we can. I think it's imperative. I think there has to be some kind of systematic nuancing and unsettling of very violent tools that really are blunt instruments that are, they're just raw extensions of the colonial power that has consistently wrought damage for the last 250 years. And and by that, I mean non-Indigenous intervention into Indigenous families and communities. So while I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't believe that full decolonization will ever occur. I do think if non-Indigenous white settler subjects begin to much more critically self-reflect on the power that we will always hold and attempt to destabilize and not use that power in an unnuanced, uncritically thought about way, we can at least stop some of the most egregious ongoing colonial violences that we see. And I would argue that those are things like the child welfare system, the quote-unquote justice system in the country, things that are really blunt apparatuses that have changed very little since early colonial times. In other words, I hope I hope we can all do better. I don't know if that's naive. Ultimately, I'm not convinced that I have the answers to it. I think we have to understand that there may be no tidally wrapped up answers to this, but surely we can do better. We can do better than the numbers of Indigenous children that are being taken out of families and communities, that have been taken out of families and communities since contact began. Surely we can do better than that. And uh, I guess that's that's what I hope for, Rick. Uh, you know, um, even one or two kids not being removed from their territory, lineage, genealogy, family, the strengths and webs of love that they would experience in their community and family. That's better than one or two kids being removed, I guess, ultimately is what I feel. It almost sounds like a harm reduction approach to colonialism. <laughs> you know, there are, I suppose, arguments for harm reduction. Um, yeah, I think it's a pretty harmful system, and I don't know the answers to undoing it. Um, well, it, but it's interesting, right? Because, I mean, uh, the concept of re-territorialization, 
I guess on one end of the spectrum, you have 100% of the land given back. And then, of course, on the other end, 0%. And according to art, the late art manual, we currently sit at 0.2%. So <laughs> there's hope that we can somehow, you know, move a little closer to 100%. Yeah. Uh, it's a low bar so far. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, well, unfortunately, I, I was going to say it's an embarrassing low bar, but uh, I think consciously or unconsciously that bar works in favor of white euro settler supremacy and uh i don't know that it's working for for white settler folks either i i, I really don't i don't think it's working for anyone well that that's a whole other discussion yeah <laughs> i mean yeah i mean it's it's been said many times and that those who enforce and implement oppression are themselves dehumanized in the process. Now, they get to maintain their, their privileges, so yeah. they have more resources to deal with yeah. it, I guess, to go to psychotherapy. But <laughs> uh, it, it eats away at everybody in the ultimate consideration. Yes. When I hear folks imbued with white supremacy complaining about their hurt, I tend to tune out. I think that maybe they should... Uh, you know, go do a little more to alleviate the hurt that has been so violently imposed from coast to coast to coast in this country. So, but uh, that's just my own idiosyncratic pessimism being unveiled, I suppose. <laughs> well, no doubt some of those feelings have, have motivated people to work in child welfare. And, and there's a whole yeah. other discussion about savior complexes. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, there are. But uh, we could go on and on, Rick. <laughs> Oh, man. Kind of like colonialism. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. We could come up with brand new tricks in order to re-perpetuate and rebuild ourselves. <laughs> well, I have to say, you know, I think you rightly connect the ideas and the concepts and, you know, I guess ultimately the underlying colonial drivers that saw non-Indigenous people intervene into the lives of Indigenous people. Yeah. I think you rightly connect that from the residential school era to what happens now. But yeah. as you know, and as you refer to in your piece, we had a TRC about the past. And yet the present, yeah. it's an analog. Yeah. And yet no one's apologizing for that now. Or yeah. you know, maybe they just kind of cast their gazes down and shuffle their feet. But we've had a lot of discussion right now about, you know, John A. McDonald and and you know, yeah. uh how do we judge him? Do we judge him by the standards of his time? And it's like, well, never, you know, notwithstanding the fact that there were people judging him at the time for what <laughs> he did. Um, what's our excuse today? Yeah. I think, um, again, at the risk of retreading some of the, the actual wording that we've already used, I think one of the tricks of colonialism is to look behind us and not look right now at the present. I think we try to constantly distance ourselves from the past. And I suppose, uh, you know, just quite broadly, one of the, the intents of what I do is to say we can't put, put the past into a tidy box and disconnect it from the present. These things that are unfolding today are unfolding 
in the most remarkably similar fashions as precisely what it is that we are critiquing and apologizing for from the past. And unless we make those linkages, unless we stop kind of discursively, linguistically, ideologically suggesting that, oh, that was then, this is now, we're so sorry for then, uh, look at our shiny bright now, and even better, let's envision how wonderful we'll be in the future. If we constantly sever that past from the present and the future, we really, we really don't stand a, a hope in terms of shifting, significantly shifting the direction that we're going. We will simply continue to retread and revisit exactly the kinds of ills that we're now so ashamed of, ostensibly, from the past. So I think just pointing that out, just constantly insisting that that conversation be had is one of the duties of people who are interested in at least attempting a little bit to unsettle normative colonial power as it currently stands. Sarah DeLeo, thank you. Rick, it was such a pleasure. Thank you. For more information about Sarah DeLeo and Margot Greenwood's paper, or to hear more Voices from the Field podcasts, visit the Center's website at nccah.ca. Music on this podcast, which appears under a Creative Commons license, is by Blue Dot Sessions. Learn more at www.sessions.blue.